and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. This episode was recorded live on November 19th, 2014. The theme of the evening was Family Secrets. She has been practicing and performing daily for the small person inside of her house. And she is very excited to be here with you here today to uh, share her story in front of a bunch of uh, adult strangers. So please give a warm welcome for Emma Weisfeld. My husband is British, and so people often ask me, how we ended up together. And what I usually explain is that we met in college uh, when I was doing one of those study abroad programs in Scotland at the university where he went to college. What I usually don't mention is that the night that we met, I had taken a lot of drugs. I had not gone to Scotland to prospect for husbands. To the contrary. For the previous three years, I had been going to college in Miami, Florida, which is the town that I grew up in. For financial reasons, I lived with my parents. I also had this boyfriend in Miami who was kind of crappy, but I didn't really know how to break up with him. So when I saw that my school had this exchange program in Scotland, I saw it as my ticket to freedom. <laughs> and when I got to Scotland, I, I went to every party, I did every weekend trip to Prague or Amsterdam, I took advantage of every make-out opportunity that presented itself, <laughs> and a couple of sex ones. <laughs> and I did every drug that was offered to me, which included something we called in those days ecstasy. And the night that I met my husband, I had done just a ridiculous amount of it. By four in the morning, I was sitting in a heap on the floor at this house party when I looked across the room and I saw this gorgeous guy staring at me. So I did the only thing that seemed natural. I crawled over to him (laughs) and I sat on his lap. After some small talk, he invited me to join him in the bathroom. I accepted. And when we got to the bathroom, he did the most romantic thing that had ever happened to me. He pushed me up against the wall and he kissed me. And then he cradled my face in his hands and said in an English accent, You're such a pretty one. (laughs) After that, James and I became inseparable. We traveled, we partied, uh, we told each other everything about our lives. I couldn't believe how connected I felt to him. 
But after two months of this very intense romance, it was time for me to go home, back to my home college in Miami where I had a semester left to graduate. And on our last night together in Scotland, James suggested that after I did graduate that we should get married. Because, you know, of the whole foreigner visa situation, it was really the only way that we could physically be together. And I was crazy about James, but the whole idea of marriage had always seemed uncool to me, especially marrying young. So I needed to think about it. So I went home and I resumed my life. Meanwhile, James and I kept on talking and writing, including discussing this possibility of marriage. Finally, I, just, I went to my mom about it. I was like, look, I, I've only known this guy really a couple of months. So marrying him seems crazy. Uh, but I also feel very in love with him. So breaking up before we've ever even really given it a shot seems equally crazy. And my mom, who's an old school feminist from the Bronx, said, Emma, here's the thing. <laughs> you can always get divorced. So I had my mother's blessing, but I was still on the fence. I, I could not accept the idea of settling down, but I also couldn't stop writing and calling James. That summer we planned uh, a trip where he would come and visit me in Miami and we would take a road trip to New Orleans. So he came and the day that we got to New Orleans to the neighborhood where the bed and breakfast that we had booked was supposed to be, we couldn't find it. And like this was the pre-smartphone era, so we just started driving around looking for a gas station or somewhere where we could ask for directions and where I could use the bathroom. Because by this time, I had been holding it in for so long that it actually felt like the pee inside of me was like poisoning my system. I couldn't think straight. And we couldn't find anything. It was just residential streets, and I knew I was running out of time. So finally, I stopped the car because I thought that maybe if I got out and walked around a little bit, I could get a second wind on my clenching. But as soon as I took a few paces, I realized that that had been a terrible mistake. I scanned the area desperately looking for anything in the immediate vicinity that could serve as a bathroom, but all I could see were nice houses and a few people walking their dogs. And I knew. It was going to happen. <laughs> and as I felt the pee starting to emerge from my body, I heard myself say these words. James, I'm peeing, cover me. <laughs> and without hesitating for even a second, James launched his body over to mine and wrapped me in a bear hug as the pee just cascaded <laughs> down my legs and drenched both of our shoes. We did eventually find the bed and breakfast. Uh, we went out to dinner after having sh showered. <laughs> and um, got back to our room. I won't get into all the details of everything that happened in our room that night. I will just say that at the end of that night, James got out a ring. But this time I knew what I was going to say because 
I realized that anyone that would leap to my aid in an emergency without considering his own inconvenience or hygiene, <laughs> anyone that would make me feel worthy of passion hours after I publicly peed my pants. I realized that marrying someone like that might not be a sacrifice and freedom. And in fact, there could be tremendous freedom in being with someone who makes you feel that loved. Besides, I knew we could always get divorced if it came to that, but luckily James turned out to be a very nice guy. And more than 10 years later, we are still together. We even have a beautiful little kid together. And one day, when that kid is older and asks me how me and his dad got together, I probably won't mention that the night that we met, I was high as a kite on ecstasy, or that our first kiss was in a bathroom, or that I knew he would be the man that I would marry after I peed on his shoes. <laughs> that level of detail will probably remain a family secret. Thank you. Zemo Weisfeld. All right. Your next storyteller, he is a member of the Fine Gentlemen's Club. He will also be at that show I was talking about at 10.30 tonight at the Deer Pile. So if you want to see him again, you can do that then. Uh, please put your hands together for Nathan Lund. Hi, everybody. Hope you guys, can you see me on the other side of this thing? All right. I, uh, my family uh, has had some uh, history of mental illness. I didn't, um, I didn't really know about it until my sister um, started to have a lot of anxiety and depression when she was in high school. And it came out, you know, we found out that, that this was common with some of the women uh, on my mom's side of the family. Some depression, some seasonal stuff, you know. Uh, mental illnesses that can slow you down can affect you and uh, I hadn't experienced anything uh, growing up nothing out of the ordinary um, I was with a girl when I graduated from college for a while and while I was with her I started to have panic attacks and I was freaked out about that for a while I uh, went to the doctor she suggested maybe it was uh, I was smoking too much weed I said there's no fucking way <laughs> that this is weed <laughs> There's no way that weed is doing this to me. I've been smoking it too long. It's something else. Turned out it was the girlfriend. Um, so, so the panic attacks went away and everything seemed pretty cool for a while. And then uh, <laughs> uh, two years ago, uh, things got even better. Um, I was really stoked. Uh, two years ago, I quit my job uh, to do stand-up comedy full-time. I worked at the Mayan movie theater and uh, yeah, it was a fun place to work until about two years ago when I quit. Uh, they brought a guy in uh, who was supposed to clean the place up, make it more, you know, customer service friendly. He, you might have seen him down there. He looked like a penis in a tie. You remember that guy at the Mayan? Looked like a penis in man form wearing a tie and pants. He, uh, he made it unbearable, so I quit, I quit my job. I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do stand-up. I quit my job. There, uh, I broke up with a girl that I had been with, uh, you know, that wanted to move on from that relationship. And so I felt very free. I was very happy at this point two years ago. I was on top of the world. I had the whole future ahead of me, nothing but time, finally, you know, to focus 
on stand-up, to get real good, to, fucking, you know, to try to get to that next level. Um, I also realized that I didn't really want to sleep too much anymore. Why sleep? I don't have to... I didn't, you know, the only reason I wanted to sleep was that I could you know, run up and down the Mayan you know, for eight hours the next day. I didn't have anything to do except for stand in a place for a few minutes, a couple times a night. So, <laughs> so I stopped sleeping. I was like, I don't really need to sleep. I felt great. Why sleep? I also realized that uh, when I wasn't sleeping, I was thinking. I wanted to think a lot. I was glad I had time to think about real shit. Instead of being distracted by how much popcorn we had, you know, or whether theater two needed to be cleaned, I had time to think about real stuff, what I wanted to do with my life, how unfair and fucked up the world was. I got to think about that way too much. I started to think uh, a lot with my emotions and think about how unfair shit was. And uh, it was around this time, I was partying a lot, I, was, I wanted to have fun, and uh, I was a big fan of taking my shirt off. That was, when you knew, <laughs> that was when you knew I was having a real good time. I would take my shirt off. Uh, it was warm, it was the summertime. Uh, I was wearing a lot of cut-off jean shorts and then taking my shirt off. And um, so basically I was, I was the Incredible Hulk for a little while. I would, uh, I, would black, <laughs> I would black out and then wake up the next day wondering what the hell I had done a lot of times. And, uh, and <laughs> so there, there were a lot of comparisons uh, to the Incredible Hulk, but I, I was the incredibly manic Hulk. I was very... I was very manic. I ended up being manic. I looked it up at some point last year, and it, I, I did manic shit. I didn't sleep. I felt invincible. I felt like I was ready to kick everybody's ass that had ever done another person wrong. I wanted to right all of the wrongs that I could. I felt big enough to be able to take on that kind of an endeavor, you know? To try to be able to combat people that kill other people or fucking, you know, people that take advantage of others or lie. <clears throat> And uh, it got heavy. I started thinking about uh, this priest that uh, I encountered in high school. We didn't know. This was before everybody joked about priests fucking little kids. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a thing. It didn't come out. But uh, it did. when it came out, I, uh, there was a guy, there was a priest in the town where I went to high school. And uh, he touched some kids. And uh, it sucked, you know. It, it felt bad for whoever that was, but I didn't realize until two years ago that I had met that priest. I knew that guy. Um, I had dated a girl in high school who had gone to the church where he worked. And I went on a retreat with uh, that church, that congregation, and I uh, ended up doing a one-on-one -on -one sit down with this priest. And he talked to me about uh, my relationship with God. And I told him I went to another church, which I did. And I said I was happy at that church. I felt good about my relationship with God. I uh, tried to play it cool. I didn't want to make it sound like I wanted to go to that church real bad because going to one church was enough. I didn't need another one, you know? <laughs> wasn't looking to add on a second church to my routine. He wasn't feeling me out to join the congregation, I don't think. I don't know. I think, uh, I think he wanted to feel me up, maybe. And that sucks to think about. It sucks. I just thought he wanted another, another person to eat a cracker every week, but... So I started thinking about that, that I met that guy and fucked that guy because he did some terrible shit and I wish that I could have gone back or I wish I could go back in time and just kill him. Just kill him, maybe with a cross or with a Bible, beat him to death with his own instrument. I got real angry, you guys. And I had the time, I didn't have a job. I could have just gone and killed him. I thought about that. 
You don't even have to take any time off. You could just go find them. I felt that big. I felt like I could just do that. Because, because I could do that during the day and you know, shows are at night, so I would, it would be separate. I thought very compulsively. I started to act. It could have been irrationally, compulsively. I did what I wanted, obviously. I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to answer to a boss or a, or a girlfriend. I could do the things I wanted. And, um, and that, obviously, very manic. I didn't realize that it was particularly manic because a lot of my life is making compulsive decisions. Tell jokes in front of strangers. Go to South Dakota for one night and come back because they're gonna give you $150. Go back because uh, it's been a year and they changed it, now it's $200. That's compulsive, that's a compulsive thing. So it didn't feel completely wrong or out of the ordinary to be making rash or, or unexpected decisions, but they, they piled up, there was, there was more, it was more than normal, it was definitely uh, abnormal for me, for anybody. Um, people started to notice, my friends knew that uh, this was not normal me. This was not uh, the Nate that they had, they had gotten to know. And so they knew that something was up. They got concerned. People started to talk, uh, you know, in hushed tones about an intervention, about trying to get me to check into a hospital. Andrew Orvidal isn't here. He wanted me to talk to a guy that he knew. And I wanted to talk to him because I knew that something was up. Mostly I just felt pissed at that priest and at anybody that had been an asshole to anybody. I just, I just wanted to be able to talk about that, how much it sucks and how, how angry it was making me. And I got to talk to Andrew and a lot of, a lot of other comics, a lot of friends about, about that anger. But um, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to stop me. You know, that was just a freight train, you know. And uh, luckily, it didn't come to that point. Um, they, it was going to happen. They were going to try and find me and, uh, and, and just tell me that they needed, they needed something to happen in order to uh, feel that I was gonna be okay. Uh, before that happened, uh, <laughs> something way worse happened. Um, there was a day where I couldn't be reached by phone. I didn't have my phone on me. I didn't care. I didn't wanna have my phone on me that day. I was hanging out with a girl and, uh, and she didn't have her phone on her. And so when the two groups of friends tried to reach both of us separately and couldn't, the mind raced. <laughs> Everybody just, everything, was possible. Nobody was sure what could have happened to us, what we were doing. We could have been Bonnie and Clyding it all over the country at that point. They didn't know. We could have, we could have taken off. <coughs> and so friends were concerned. They couldn't find me. Uh, Facebook did not help because I wasn't on there. And so it was just everybody saying they hadn't talked to me as opposed to anybody saying that they had. And so it just fed, uh, just fed this collective worried uh, worried state in the, in the Denver comedy scene. Um, and when I was found, I felt bad. I, f I, I felt, I actually felt annoyed because I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want everybody to be concerned about me. I wanted to know that I was big and tough and I was gonna take care of everything. Everything was gonna be okay because now I had the time, you know, to, <laughs> to go through this checklist of, uh, you know, inhumanities and injustices uh, throughout time and space and correct them. Um, <laughs> not long after that, uh, I freaked out at the show that I'm about to go to, too much fun. I freaked out there. It, uh, nobody felt, I felt like nobody was listening to me, like nobody uh, was as concerned as I was or as alarmed that you know, nobody was doing anything about, <laughs> about all the bullshit 
um, that, you know, that could be fought you know, at, at any moment. Um, I freaked out. I stormed out. I left. I took my shirt off. I walked. <laughs> I was going to walk home and either quit the Fine Gentleman's Club or get kicked out. I didn't know what. But everything felt very final, felt very amplified, obviously. My, my brain was fried and, um, and just racing and tired. And um, Chris Charpentier followed me out. And um, I don't know what he did except he like deflated my balloon. I, I was about to pop. I was really close to popping. And he let the air out and it made a little fart sound. And it really did. It, 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 it's, it let out a lot of... The, 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 the tension and, the, and the, the, the gas, the steam was just bubbling and boiling inside of me. He talked to me. He said, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm scared. What's wrong? You know, and he listened, and, and uh, he helped. And it just helped me realize that uh, I'd been on a tear. I, I hadn't been able to see it. I was in the middle of it. And so I was able to kind of see how I had been and, uh, and, and realize how scary uh, I, had, uh, I had been to others. And so... Uh, I was able to slow down after that, kind of collect myself. Um, a few people have told me they were surprised that I didn't uh, end up arrested or in the hospital because sometimes that's the only thing that stops you if you start going like that. If you start, you don't want to stop, and so you have to be stopped. And um, I think Sharpie stopped me um, from continuing to barrel, you know, just down towards destruction. Uh, my mine you know, and or, you know, the bad guys. And um, that's been two years, and nothing else has really happened. I've felt fine. I've felt uh, normal, if you can call it that. I still will go to South Dakota for $150, so I don't know how normal you could call that uh, behavior. But uh, I, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't felt like the incredibly manic Hulk since that period of time. Uh, I feel like I'm more... Uh, like the incredibly sympathetic but hopeful dude. Thank you, guys. That was Nathan Lutz. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>